St. Ignatius gave us this prayer. He said, Lord, take and receive all my liberty, my memory, my understanding, and my entire will, all I have that I call my own take. You have given all to me. To you, Lord, I return it. Everything is yours. Do with it what you will. Give me only your love and your grace. That is enough for me. Heavenly Father, we want this prayer to be our prayer. We want to say that your love and your grace is sufficient in our lives. That having Christ... Infinitely more than sufficient. Father, I know many of my brothers and sisters have gathered here this morning with sorrowful hearts. And yet in this passage you call us to joy. I pray we would not hear it with hardness. I ask, Lord, that we would not spurn your word and think these words trite. But instead you would show us the real joy, the true joy, the everlasting joy, which is Christ. And by your grace, apply it. Apply it to us this morning, Father. Apply it to me. Apply it to my brothers and sisters. Apply it to your church throughout the world this morning. By your grace, turn our sorrow to joy, that your name might be magnified in all the earth. We ask these things in Christ's name. Amen. You may be seated. Good morning. If you have a Bible, please open up to the Gospel of John, chapter 16. We have been working our way through the Gospel of John. We're running close to a year now. We've uh, made some good work up to 16. We're going to close up 16 next week, and we're going to begin chapter 17, the High Priestly Prayer. It will likely take me four weeks to get through that. Um, I have been waiting to preach John chapter 17 for about 15 years. Um, so it may go longer than four weeks. Uh, this morning we have a chance to look at and continue to look at a dialogue, the, fa- the, the farewell discourse of our Lord with the disciples on that Thursday night. And he's dealing with sorrow for them. When I was a young boy, we moved here. We moved to San Jose when I was about five. And my entire family remained in Washington. And uh, my grandmother, whom we loved dearly, would come down once every other year or so. She hated to fly. She couldn't drive. And so she would get on a train from Tacoma, Seattle area, and she would take the train down to San Jose. And we had such fond memories of piling into the car and then going to the train station and waiting on the platform. And it's probably not done much anymore. And we'd stand and we'd wait and we'd wait in that train and we'd wait for it to come in. It would come in and then we'd see her. And it was just pure joy. But that entire time we were there on the platform, there was that peace in my heart that in two weeks, we're going to be getting back in the car, we're going to stand on that platform, we're going to watch her leave. And as joyful as that was, there was that sense of sorrow underneath it that was never resolved, because I knew it'd be another year or so before we get a chance to see her. Our Lord is dealing with the same type of sorrow on this Thursday night in the upper room with his disciples. They are filled with sorrow Because Christ is leaving them. And he's already told them, and we we saw this last week, he's already said, it's to your advantage that I leave. Because by my going, I'm going to complete the great work of the cross, and I'm going to return to my Father. 
and it means that I can actually send the Holy Spirit to come and dwell within you forever. He's going to come and he's going to apply the great work of my sacrifice to you. Paul tells us in 1 Corinthians 3.16, Do you not know that you are God's temple and that God's spirit dwells in you? And so they're hearing this, but their hearts are grieving over the fact that there's going to be this absence with this man, with their Lord, whom they love so much. He's going to get on this train, he's going to head to heaven, and, and they can't reconcile this. They're only a few hours away from his being removed, literally taken from them and arrested. And so he explains to them, this is going to be horrific. This is going to be a few hours of your life that you will never forget. But he tells them it's going to be brief. Look with me, if you would, at verse 16. I'm going to read through 19. He tells them, I'm going to leave. It's going to be brief. I'm going to come back. And when I return, I'll never leave again. Verse 16, a little while and you will see me no longer. And again, a little while you will see me. Some of his disciples said to one another, what is this that he says to us? A little while and you will not see me. And again, a little while and you will see me. And because I'm going to the Father. Verse 18, so they were saying, what does he mean by a little while? We do not know what he's talking about. Jesus knew that they wanted to ask him. So he said to them, is this what you are asking yourselves? What I meant by saying, a little while and you will not see me. And again, a little while and you will see me. At this point in time, you're thinking, why don't they just ask? I mean, three years, just ask him, right? There's embarrassment, there's pride, still in the, in the grieving mode. He's already explained to them. Early in the ministry, he has explained to them. In fact, in Gospel Mark, it says, he says to them plainly, I'm going to be arrested, I'm going to be persecuted, I'm going to be crucified, I'm going to be buried, I'm going to rise again, I'm going to ascend to the Father. So they, they've heard this for three years now. But now they're at the moment of truth when he's actually going to ascend the cross. And in going to the cross, they cannot fathom his physical presence being removed from them. He tells them, a little while and you will see me no longer. And again, a little while and you will see me again. And they are rightly confused. In fact, if you read that too fast, you're going, I don't even know what he's saying. First little while. He's going to be arrested in a matter of hours. It's the first little while. They're going to take him. He's going to be betrayed in the garden by Judas. The Jews are going to show they're going to take him. They're going to hand him over to the Romans. First little while. The second little while, look at verse 16. He says, and again, and a little while, they would not see him. That would begin the following day, Friday afternoon, his crucifixion. And that little while would last until Sunday morning at his resurrection. But then he says, I'm going to return. And in that returning, he says, I'm never going to leave again. So this little while literally is less than 48 hours, this little while. And then he's going to come back in his resurrected form. And he's going to stay with them 40 days. And he's going to appear to over 500 witnesses testifying to his resurrection and the gospel itself. And then he's going to ascend into heaven. And we know that at Pentecost, he sends the Holy Spirit to come and dwell with them. And as we saw last week, in them. So that they would never be without him. Paul makes this clear in Romans 8, verses 9 and 10. He says, you are not in the flesh, but what? In the Spirit. If, in fact, the Spirit of God dwells in you, if Christ is in you. And so when we talk about the Spirit of Christ dwelling in us, we're talking about Christ dwelling in us. That's why he can say, I'm not going anywhere. You're going to have me forever. 
So following his ascension, he sends the Spirit, and then he reminds them here, he's going to be with you in that 40 days. He's going to be with you at Pentecost. He's going to be with you during your suffering as you establish the church, and he will be with the church to the end of the age. And that's why he tells us this in Hebrews. He says clearly what? I will never leave you, and I will never forsake you. We know Matthew chapter 20, 28, verse 20 says, I will be with you always, even to the end of the age, which started, by the way, at his resurrection. The last day started with his resurrection. So we're in that time right now. Now, if you look back at verse 12 with me, he said to them, I still have many things to say to you, but you cannot bear them now. So he, he gets their fragile condition. They're confused. They're grieving. They're afraid. They're filled with sorrow. And so he doesn't go into this. Here's the timeline. He doesn't build an eschatological timeline for them. Instead, what does he do? He deals with their condition of their heart. He deals with their sorrow because he wants their sorrow to be turned to joy. He wants them to be joy-filled disciples who then engage in this ministry with great hope. And he, he brings the focus then back, not on the timeline of his death and his resurrection, his ascension, but on his presence. He says, I'm going to leave, but I'm going to come back. For a little while, I'm going to be gone, but then I'm going to come back. And it's his very presence that I want us to focus on this morning too. If you, if you struggled this week with sorrow, if you've had some real difficult times in the past month, you see, you know, they're, they're, I'm lacking this joy that God is talking about. There's not a trick to it. It's a person. It's Christ. And it has everything to do with his presence. And so by God's grace this morning, we will work on the presence of Christ in our lives. I want to do that in three ways. One, how Jesus Christ turns sorrow to joy. Number two, how he enables us to pray in the day of joy, which is today. How he enables us to pray. And number three, how he makes our joy complete. Turning sorrow to joy, enabling us to pray in the day of joy, and making our joy complete. That last one I know you're tempted by, right? Because you said, I'd like complete joy. I'd like the fullness of joy. But let's work to get there first, okay? So let's, let's practice what we learned in the seminar this morning. Let's practice some biblical patience. Proverbs thirteen twelve. The sage said, hope deferred makes the heart sick. Hope deferred makes the heart sick. There's something about having the end in sight that makes the suffering more bearable. I mean, isn't that true? When you were a kid, did you not do this to your parents on the long road trip? What did you ask? Are we almost there yet? Are we almost there yet? You say, why do you keep asking me this? Because if they could just know, is it 30 minutes? Is it an hour? Somehow, they'd be able to endure. Their circumstances have not changed. They're still in the car suffering. But if they can have some idea of how much longer that suffering will last, it's it's easier for them. And Christ gets that. He has compassion, perfect compassion upon his children. And so he lets them know, this suffering you're going to go through, it's going to be a little while. It's going to be brief. But then I'm coming back, and I'm going to take your sorrow, and I'm going to replace it with my joy. It's amazing to me. Christ is in the hour of his crisis. They should have been comforting him But true to their nature, and I would say our nature, and his nature, what happens? They're so overwhelmed with him leaving, all they can think about is being alone. They're completely self-centered in this approach. And he says, you know what, I'm going to have compassion upon them, and I'm going to reassure them, and I'm going to tell them how I will bring them joy. Look at verse 20. He says, truly, truly, I say to you, you you will weep and lament, but the world will rejoice 
you will be sorrowful, but your sorrow will turn into joy. And so we have this wonderful, the twofold repetition, truly, truly, verily, verily, amen, amen. And I've, I've expressed to you that that, that is a, 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 a moment, it's used in scripture, where Jesus is saying, listen closely, this is really important. But I want to add to that, he's also saying, here's a compassionate statement. Truly, truly, here's a statement that I want you to hear for your sorrow-filled hearts. And he prophesies to them. Right? He's telling them, these next few hours are going to be really difficult. I mean, you're going to be filled with sorrow. You're going to weep. You're going to wail. In fact, the, the language in the Greek, that is the weeping and the wailing and the sobbing of a death. And, and they're going to wail because he's going to be murdered. And so he says, this is coming. Prepare yourselves for it. When they see Christ taken and beaten and then crucified, I mean, he's God that was with them in the flesh. And so this is, this is a friend. This was their, their Lord and their teacher. And so they're grieved over the absence that is taking place, that's going to take place in their lives. They're sobbing and they're wailing over the fact that he was not just arrested and not just executed, but he was tortured and crucified the means by which he was murdered was so disgraceful. There was no greater way to dishonor a man or a woman than to crucify them on a Roman cross in that time. So they're grieving over that. They're grieving over the fact that the world is rejoicing. What a bitter pill. I mean, what a bitter pill. It would have been hard enough to see Christ go through that. But then to hear the world rejoice in the midst of their Savior's suffering... They knew this man. I mean, they knew him. They knew his compassion. They saw his mercy. They saw the love extended. They saw this man give his life for the teaching and the preaching of the gospel. They saw him suffer as he poured out his power to heal the sick and give sight to the blind. They saw him exercise this great ministry of suffering to these people. And now these people have turned on him and with an unholy glee are rejoicing in his suffering. How difficult for the disciples to hear this. But Christ comes here and he says, listen, this is not the end of the story. What a dark night. What a dark day. What a dark Friday night. As they thought to themselves, it's over. The mission's done. And Christ says, it's not over. It's just beginning. This is not the last scene in God's plan of redemption. And what he's saying to them that he needs to say to us that we need to hear is this exact same event that brought them such great sorrow, the exact same event would bring them exceeding joy. Same event. Sorrow and joy at the cross of Jesus Christ. And then he gives us an illustration, because I, I can't do illustrations well, so he provided that for this sermon. You ready? Look at verse 21. When a woman is giving birth, she has sorrow because her hour has come but when she has delivered the baby, she no longer remembers the anguish for joy that a human being has been born into the world. Now, this is not something I can personally testify to, nor will I try, but I did speak to several of my sisters in Christ who did testify to this fact. Some of my sisters who went through very difficult childbirthing process, especially the, the latter part, and they said, absolutely, when, when that baby is placed upon my chest, they said, when my son or daughter is on my chest and I see their face, it's as though the nine months disappeared. I praise God for that or there'd be none of us here, right? That would have to be the case. Jesus Christ is saying the same thing to us. 
that at the cross, he endured this great suffering, this great pain. We, as we go through this life in this fallen world, as we suffer, the hope that comes is Christ. It is him sending the Holy Spirit, that great birth of the church at Pentecost, coming alive, and people coming alive in Christ by the thousands. In fact, the apostle Peter, as he was declaring the gospel at Pentecost, he quotes the prophet Joel in Acts 2, verse 17 and 21. He said, in the last days it shall be, God declares, that I will pour out my spirit on all flesh, and it shall come to pass that everyone who calls upon the name of the Lord shall be saved, be born again. Everyone. So this birthing process, horrific and dark, but Christ is the other side is glorious. Look at 22. So also you have sorrow now, after he explained the childbirth, so also you have sorrow now to the disciples, but I will see you again, and your hearts will rejoice, and no one will take your joy from you. So he said, you know what? The, the woman understands this maybe better than the man. The labor, brutal, but it's for a little while, and then comes the life, then the son, and then the daughter. Christ is saying that to the disciples and to us as well. This life, this suffering, this sorrow that we go through, it is for a little while. But if you have Christ, then you have joy right now. Look at verse 22. I will see you again and your heart will rejoice. He's saying, take comfort, saints. Take comfort now. Because you can see him and you can have him and you can know him. His dying upon the cross conquered death, not just for himself, but for all who would repent and believe. And therefore, the great sorrow that should fill your heart that is, your sin and rebellion against a most holy God, Christ took care of on the cross. And through faith in him, by God's grace, you can be saved too. You can be born again. And so that sorrow can be turned to joy instantly in Christ for all who repent and believe. And then he says something extraordinary. He says, that joy cannot be taken away because you will never, ever be separated from him again. Look, he says, I will see you again, and your hearts will rejoice, and no one will take your joy from you. He said, now we're at the part of the sermon I really want to hear, because my joy is great on Saturday, bad on Sunday, great on Monday, don't have it Tuesday. That's not biblical joy, saints. Those are emotions, and we all have them. The biblical joy that the Bible talks about is that deep, abiding satisfaction in God that cannot be shaken regardless of your circumstances. You can have the worst Monday or the greatest Tuesday. If you have joy in Christ, it cannot be taken from you. And those of you older and deeper in this faith, you know of what I speak because you've been through some hard stuff. You know that. And you've had joy in the midst of it. And you've amazed all of us as we've watched you, thinking, how can you have that joy? Christ alone. This abiding joy the world cannot take. And this is why. Listen. The Jews and the Romans are going to come and they're going to take Christ and therefore they're filled with sorrow. But he says, I'm going to come back. And when I come back, neither Jew nor Roman, neither demon nor darkness can take me from you again. Cannot be separated. The only way that we can truly lose our joy is if we lose Christ. And for the believer, you cannot lose Christ. In fact, not only can you not lose Christ, he, you enjoy his presence every moment of every day in the Holy Spirit. And so you can't lose the joy of Christ in a moment, let alone a day, a week, or for the remainder of your life, if you have him, this indwelling of the Spirit of Christ, this holy, 
presence, you being the temple. In fact, the glorious words of encouragement that we get from Romans chapter 8, these were words that were so dear to my heart early on in Christ, thinking, I cannot, I cannot do this walk. I will lose Christ. He will leave me. And then I read Romans chapter 8, when Paul adamantly says, who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword, and you put whatever else you need to put on there. He says, no. In all these things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. Now listen to this. For I am sure that neither death nor life, nor angels nor rulers, nor things present nor things to come, nor powers, nor height nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. If that doesn't resound an amen in your heart, you're not listening. Amen. You cannot be separated from Christ. And if you can't be separated from Christ, you cannot lose your joy. Did you hear that? It cannot be taken from you. You can't even take it from you. You don't have that power. The Jews came, the Romans came, and for a little while, they took Christ away. And they thought, they thought they had stopped the rebel. They had stopped the gospel. Done. No more redemptive plan. And they had no idea that God was using that plan as part of his decreed plan, which was to restore mankind and redeem many souls for his son, to bring Christ back from the dead and to impart the Holy Spirit that we might, as his people, be indwelt and filled with joy. That is the kingdom. Paul said in Romans 14, 17, for the kingdom of God is not a matter of eating and drinking, but listen to this, of righteousness and peace and joy in the Holy Spirit. Does that describe your life, saints? Is it more about the eating and the drinking and the daily work, or is it about righteousness and peace and joy? Can you say, I am filled with joy? So first we see That Jesus Christ, through the cross, takes the sorrow that filled the disciples' hearts and he turns it to joy everlasting. He's done the same thing with you if you know Christ. Because you were dead in your sins and transgressions. You were in sorrow unimaginable, you didn't even know it. And then he came to you and he made you alive. He breathed life into you and you've been born again. You came out of those labor pains, a new person, a new creation. And he's imparted the Holy Spirit to you. And that means you have Christ. And that means you have joy. You may not know it, you may not exercise it well, but you do. By God's grace, before we're done here, you'll know how. All right, so if we have joy, let's let's look at the second point, praying in the day of joy. Look at verse 23. Jesus said, in that day, in that day, the day of Pentecost, the day when the Holy Spirit is poured out and the church is born, in that day, you will ask nothing of me. Truly, truly, I say to you, whatever you ask of the Father in my name, he will give it to you. In that day, when the Holy Spirit comes, Christ says, you're not going to ask me anything. Remember, they're confused. They're not asking. They want to ask. And he says, you know, there's going to come a time when you're going to have the Holy Spirit and my word, and you're not going to need to ask me these things. It's going to be known to you. You're going to know it. I'm going to put it down through the Holy Spirit in in something I call the Bible. And then that Bible is my very word. And by your Holy Spirit, you will read it, you'll understand it, and you'll live in accordance with it. Christ said, you're not going to ask me these things anymore. That's an amazing thought for us saints, especially in our day and age when we have Bibles. You have the Holy Spirit, you have the Bible, so you don't need to ask Christ. 
I mean, they're, they're so confused. They're confused on the timeline, right? They're confused over his departure. He said he's going to go away. He said he's going to go be with the Father. They believe he's not going to come back until the end of time. But he says, I'm only going to go away for a little while. They're probably even confused on their mission. You know, what, how are we going to do this when you leave? Christ, is, Christ said there's going to come a time when, look at, back, look at verse 14. When the Spirit comes, he says in verse 14, he says, He, the Spirit, will glorify me, for he will take what is mine and declare it to you. No need to ask. You're a friend. Remember? You're on the inside now. You know my Father's will and you know my Father's plan. No need to be confused. In fact, we're told, John tells us a little bit later, 1 John chapter 2, he says, you have been anointed by the Holy Spirit and you have all knowledge. How many of you go, hmm, maybe I don't have an anointing then. (laughs) You have all knowledge. Verse 27, the anointing that you received from him abides in you and you have no need that anyone should teach you. His anointing teaches you about everything and it is true. And so if you know Christ, one of the reasons that we moved away from the concept of a, of a priest in the Catholic Church, if you have the Holy Spirit and you have a Bible, God speaks directly to you. You can know these things. It doesn't mean that we don't have teachers or preachers, otherwise we wouldn't be doing this. But it does mean that you can't understand them. Look at verse 23 again. Truly, truly, I say to you, whatever you ask of the Father in my name, he will give it to you. He says again, verily, verily, amen, amen, meaning what? Important and compassionate. So are you listening? Whatever you ask the Father in my name, he will give it to you. You know, that's the third time he's made that statement in the last three chapters. He said it in chapter 14, in chapter 15, and again in chapter 16, all in a matter of hours. What does that tell us? This is important. This is not a verse that we want to fly by. We dealt with it in detail in the previous two, but I want to touch on it again. He said, anything you ask the Father in my name, he will give it to you. Now, we know, we've established, this is not a formulaic prayer where if you tack the name of Jesus Christ on to the end of your prayer, that you're going to have some mystical power where God the Father then will answer it. It's not what this is saying. It is, as we've already established, it is to pray in the spirit and heart of Jesus Christ. It is to pray that his kingdom and the Father's will and the Father's glory be magnified in whatever you're asking for. It is to daily come before Jesus Christ and recognize that you are in abject poverty spiritually, physically, without him. And then ask him. It's to ask God the Father for everything. And I mean everything. If you do not ask God for your daily needs, do not be surprised if you don't have them one day. We are to ask God for food and drink and the clothes on our back and the houses we stay in. Grace, grace, grace. We're to ask God for the friendships that we have and the church that we worship in and that we serve in. We're to ask God for the work that we have and the relationships that we enjoy. We're to ask Him for the security and peace that is so lacking in our lives. He's saying, ask of these things. My Father wants to give you these things. And that means, my beloved, that when you go back and you read the Sermon on the Mount and you pray, Thy kingdom come, Thy will be done, you are asking for God's kingdom and God's will and God's way to supersede your entire life, that your agenda will not be first. It is a most bold prayer to say, Thy kingdom come, Thy will be done in your life, to ask Him that. That means everything. 
it means that you go to God in prayer, not just when life is out of control. How many of you are, are the, uh, you know, a crisis is hit and you go to God and you got to pray? And we pray and we pray and we pray and we pray fervently during those times. And then when things are okay, we don't pray so much. Right? This is not what he's talking about. He's also not talking about asking God's will to be done when everything is going exactly as you want. <laughs> I mean, that's an easy prayer, right? Things are good. Lord, your will be done. It is being done. Don't change it. Jesus said in Luke 14, that if you are a disciple of his, you will renounce everything and follow him. You'll renounce everything. That means your work will be the work that God wants you to have. The home that you live in will be the home that God wants you to live in. The food that you eat will be the food that God provides from his hand. Everything, Christ says, come, hold nothing back. Ask my Father in my name, in accordance with his will. By faith, seeking his glory, out of your abject poverty, Christ says, come and ask. It's such an over-the-top statement that if you ask and you really ask, and it's done in faith, and it's in accordance with his will, and it's to glorify God. If you ask God the Father something in the name of Christ, this passage and several others says that God the Father is going to answer it. I fail at this miserably. I was so convicted by this verse this week. thinking I don't ask enough. I certainly don't ask big enough. And I lack faith that God's actually going to answer it. I, I ask it thinking, oh, I, ho- I hope you do that. I mean, that's just, that's just shameful. And shame on me for not having the faith that God will actually answer and give to me that which I ask in Jesus' name. In accordance with his will. So if you're like me and you're like the disciples and oftentimes you're filled with sorrow, and so you can sing often sorrow, often Ask God to give you joy. Just ask him. Don't make it complicated. Say, Lord, I lack joy. I lack knowing joy. He's a good father. If you find yourself experiencing the birth pangs now, you say, I, I don't know that I can even make it to the end. You know, I know First John says, those who persevere to the end shall be saved. I don't know if I'm going to make it. Maybe sorrow is that hard for you right now. Ask God for comfort now. Ask him to understand what he means when he said our light and momentary troubles are achieving for us an eternal glory that far outweighs them all. Ask him to give you that vision of heaven and that vision of Christ and that hope that is assured. Ask him. Ask him. Last night as we were ministering at the Salvation Army, one of the men was saying to me, this is what I want in my life and they were all godly requests he says, I don't, I don't want to be a slave to sin. I don't want to be a bad father. I want to honor my wife. And I said, then ask him. Because God wants all those things for you too. He says, how do I know? He says, how do you know that? I said, because that's what the Bible says. Ask him. If you lack wisdom, ask for wisdom. Ask for God to quicken your heart that you might hear his word and discern it and apply it to your lives. If you lack discipline to read the Bible, ask God for discipline to read the Bible. It's probably the number one reason that I hear when I say, are you in the word? They say, I am sometimes, but not. I lack discipline. Then ask your father for the heart of discipline. I had one young man say to me, I can't even, I don't even brush my teeth the same way each day. How am I going to read the Bible every day? 
God's grace. If you're a poor witness, ask for courage. If you are a poor servant, ask for a greater love for your brothers and sisters. If you lack faith, ask for faith. If you find yourself more oftentimes than not dissatisfied in life, ask that God might show you Christ more clearly. You see him as we saw last week. And you have him, your dissatisfaction will be filled with joy instead. So God is saying, hold nothing back. Pray boldly in the name of Christ. Pray boldly in the name of my son. And so I hope that we see that at the cross, at the cross, the sorrow is turned to joy. And at the cross, we are, we are called into the throne room. And this is the entry, right? As Christ dies for our sins and brings us into the throne room, he says, now, here's my father. He's your father too. Ask him, ask him. And then he says something so bold, I'll get to our last point, how that, that praying will make your joy complete. It's an amazing teaching. Look at verse 24, last point. How Christ makes our joy complete. Verse 24, until now, Jesus says, you have asked nothing in my name. Ask and you will receive that your joy may be full. What an incredible statement. Up until this point in time, Jesus Christ is with them in the flesh. So if they wanted to ask him something, they would ask him something. They'd say Jesus, he'd say yes. They had direct dialogue. If they wanted to pray, they would pray to the Father, as all respectable Jews would, according to the Old Testament and the Old Covenant. And the Old Covenant had a very different type of prayer. The Old Covenant was very clear that The blessings were poured out upon those who actually followed the laws of God, and there were curses, many curses, for those who did not live in accordance with the laws of God. And Jesus is saying, all this is changing because the old covenant's going away, and I'm ushering in something brand new. In a matter of hours, Jesus Christ is going to go to the cross, and he will do the work that opens the door to the Father for sinful, fallen people like us. He would fulfill the law. He would do that work that we absolutely cannot and would not do. Under the old covenant, we stand condemned. Perfection was necessary for salvation. You say, well, I'm not close to that. Praise God for that revelation. None of us are. This new covenant is replaced by God's grace through faith in Jesus Christ. So it's not your perfection, it's your affection for God. That changes everything. More aptly put, his affection for you that changes everything. This covenant of grace is what Christ is calling us into. And he's telling his disciples, don't pray like that anymore. Pray now in my name. Pray now in my grace. Pray in the work that I'm going to do on the cross in a matter of hours. We're told in Hebrews chapter 8, Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will establish a new covenant, not like the covenant I had with their fathers, for they did not continue in my covenant. No man ever has. For this is the covenant, God says, I will will offer in those days, declares the Lord. He's talking about the church and Pentecost. I will put my laws in their minds and write them on their hearts. I will be their God and they shall be my people, for I will be merciful toward their iniquities. I will remember their sins no more. 
And in speaking of a new covenant, he makes the first one obsolete. And so when we come into the throne room, we don't enter under the old covenant, thinking if I, if I try really hard and if I abide by the law, that God will be happy and he'll hear my prayers and he'll let me in. It's entirely changed by the relationship we now have with God the Father through Jesus Christ. The sorrow is turned to joy, not in our work. The sorrow is turned to joy because of the work of Jesus. Because now you have God. And you can. You can go to the Father and you can ask anything. And if it's in Christ's name, you're going to receive it. You're going to receive that answered prayer. No more your merit, no more your work, no more your religion. That way, you know, is only judgment. It's only death. You try to come into a relationship with God apart from Christ and you will perish. You try to pray to God for anything on your own merit. That prayer is not only not heard, it will, it will stand against you in the day of judgment. Recognizing God apart from Jesus Christ. By the name of Jesus Christ alone is eternal life found. And it's under grace. Unmerited favor. That God calls you and me out of the darkness into his inexpressible love in Christ. Jesus says here, keep asking in my name. Look again. Ask. It says, ask in the ESV and you will receive that your joy may be full. So let's do that part and we'll close. That's complete joy. That's joy filled up. It actually means joy that's overflowing more and more and more. And you see the avenue by which the joy comes? Answered prayer that comes from the finished work of Jesus Christ on the cross and your loving obedience to him. There's joy. There's overflowing joy. There's the fullness of joy. I'm talking about that deep, abiding, God-given satisfaction in the depth of your soul. If you do not know Christ, you cannot understand what I'm talking about. If you do know Christ, you do know it. You may say, you know, that's fleeting for me times at pastors, but I know it. I've tasted it. This is what Christ is talking about. The Father answers the prayers of Je- in Jesus' name. In so doing, makes our joy complete. How is this possible? It may surprise you that, jo- that God is actually interested in the joy of his people. That may shock some of you. Well, you say, you know, my life has been so hard for so long. If he desires me to have joy, he's not doing a very good job. You know that's not true. God did not save us in Christ and bring us into the kingdom of light for us to walk around as depressed, sorrowful fools our whole life. That's not the Christian life. And yet we see a lot of that in the church. It's either this, the other extreme, which is this strange levity with no sense of the holiness of God, or this monastic throwback where we go around in camel's hair and, 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 and sorrow and, and, and bitterness. Jesus Christ said, I want you to ask and I want you to keep asking. That would be its most literal translation. Ask, ask, and ask again. Because there's something that happens in prayer. And for those of you who are my prayer warriors, you know of what I speak. The more you come into the presence of God, 
And the more you bring before him your adoration and your confession and all the thanksgiving and all the supplications, the more you do that, the more your character is shaped by him. All the things in your life that you ask of him, you know that he gives you that which is best for you. And the more time you spend with God, the more you begin to realize this. That he actually only gives you that. He's the great father. He's the perfect. He only gives you that which is best for you. And he says no to those things that are not. And he never gives you. He never gives you that which is detrimental to your soul and your sanctification in Christ and becoming like a son. Jesus said in Matthew chapter 7, which one of you, he said, which one of you, if his son asks for bread, will give him a stone? Or if he asks for a fish, will give him a serpent? And then Jesus says, if you then, who are evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more, let that resonate, how much more will your Father, who is in heaven, give good things to those who what? Who ask him. Saints, we do not have because we do not ask. We are guilty of not asking God for the good things that he wants to have in our lives. And I'm not talking about that house or that car or that job. He may bless you with those things. I'm talking about that joy. I'm talking about the courage of going and sharing the gospel. I'm talking about real ministry, real mission. He only gives us what perfectly provides for our sanctification. And then in giving it, listen, your joy becomes complete. You praying to God and God giving you only what is good and only what is best makes your joy complete. It makes you full. It makes you satisfied. It makes you realize that you already have everything. Right? I mean, the more you pray, the more you realize you have everything because you have Christ. You have him. No need, no need to ask for Jesus again. I mean, you don't have to say, Father, give me Christ again if you have him. You'll find through prayer that your joy is God. It is him. So if you're lacking in joy, you say, you know, Pastor, I hear this and I believe this verse. But sorrow, not joy, is characteristic of my life. What's going on? And what then is happening? I know for some, it's because you don't ask at all. I say this in love, but you just do not pray. If you do not pray, and God is saying here that joy is complete through prayer, you must expect not to be joyful. Some of you, you ask, but you do not keep on asking. You ask once, you act twice, you ask twice, you get impatient, you say, enough. He's not, he's not answering. I've asked for a week now. In the Greek here, it is a president imperative, and it means ask, ask, ask. Christ knows that if you continue to come into the presence of God, that that's where the transformative power is. The very means of the asking has the power to change you and make you a joyful person. So he says, keep coming, keep asking, keep coming, and keep asking. It could be, my beloved, that you say, oh, I pray. And I ask all the time. It could be that you're not asking in the name of Christ. I mean, your prayers are not in alignment with his will. Your prayers do not desire God's glory. 
Your prayers are fleshly prayers. Many of our prayers are fleshly prayers. And again, we've got to be so careful. He tells us to pray for everything. But if all your prayers are about your temporal comforts, your food, your drink, your job, your retirement, likely not in the will of God, if that's all you're praying about. It could be, my beloved, as simple as this, that you do not have joy in Christ because you continuously seek joy in things other than Jesus. You seek it in your marriage. You seek it in church, maybe. You seek it in a a favorite food or a movie. But whatever it is, you know this. You seek your joy, your abiding, lasting joy in anything other than Christ. It will only be fleeting. If Christ is our joy, then he's the only one that can make this complete. Look at verse 24 again. Ask and you will receive that your joy may be full. So the connection here, I do not want you to miss as I close this. Jesus is making an immediate and permanent connection between our prayers and our joy being full. There is no other way for you to walk in a manner of complete joy, absent this type of persistent daily praying in the name of Jesus. Now this, this was big for me because I thought, all right, what about me? How often do I lack joy? How often do I struggle throughout the week? I thought, you know what? I'm not submitting to this. And so I am the greatest of fools if I think that my joy will be complete and I'm not adhering to this very simple teaching in verse 24, ask and you'll receive that your joy may be full. Because what I know and what you know is that when you're in real prayer in the name of Jesus Christ, you are in the presence of Almighty God. And in real prayer, in His presence, you are so deeply satisfied that if someone said to you in that moment, do you lack joy? And you say, what a foolish question. I'm overflowing in joy right now. And they say, well, why is that? Is God answering all your prayers? You say, I have no idea. Sometimes yes, sometimes no, sometimes not yet. But right now, I have God. And your joy is complete. Two nights ago, I'm in my backyard on a chair, praying to God as I'm looking at the stars. And I finally understood what Jesus meant. I thought, it's complete. I lack nothing. I want that for you, my beloved. I want you to know this fullness of joy that you have in Christ right now. You've been brought into a new kingdom. You are a new creature. The Holy Spirit of Christ, if you know Jesus as Lord and Savior, dwells in you at this very moment. You are here only for a little while. Whatever trial and tribulation you're going through now or you will go through, this is just a moment compared to eternity. When Christ died on the cross, he brought us into the end times. These are the last days. The Bible says it over and over again. Don't get weird in your eschatology. These are the last days. You are with Christ in them now. There's nothing to wait for. 
you can have the joy now in him. Rejoicing in him now, worshiping him now, and by his strength and power, working in him now that we might bring this glorious news to a most sorrowful, pitiful, grievous world. That we can go to them and say, there's no joy there, but there's joy at the cross. And show them Christ. You don't want to hide this. You do not want to keep this in. Not just because we're commanded to share it, but you cannot. How can you keep the joy of Christ inside how can it not overflow into your family into your workplace and into your neighborhood my beloved i pray that if you receive joy from this teaching i pray that you don't you do not lose its missional emphasis because christ is directing the disciples to mission and that is the call here to take this great news of a savior jesus christ and the joy he brings to the world that they might hear it too that they too might rejoice. Amen? All right, let's pray. Father, how glorious it is that you desire for your children to be filled with the joy of your Son. As if it's not enough that you would stoop down and you would enter into your rebellious, sinful creation, and you redeem sinners like us out of the flames of hell. As if it's not enough, Father, that you would come and you would bring to us the Holy Spirit, that he might be with us and dwell in us and fill us with the joy of your Son. But you've given us that now. Father, forgive us. Forgive us, not for lacking the joy, we have it. Forgive us for being so foolish and so caught up in this life, being so myopic in our vision that we don't see the joy that we have because we already have Jesus. Forgive us, I pray. Forgive us as a church. Forgive us as a people. And by your grace and mercy, press that joy in so deep this morning into our hearts and our minds that we are forever changed. Make it permanent just as it is. And let us be a people filled with the joy of Christ. Lord, we ask this not for our own joy. We ask it for your glory and your majesty that your son's name would be magnified in our lives, in this neighborhood, in San Jose. Father, do a work, I pray. Do a work that we might glorify you. Set our feet on on fire and send us out of this place that we might go into that, that, that mission field that you've set for us and bring this glorious news to those who have never heard. Open our mouths and open their ears. In Christ's holy name, amen.